Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you, people, back in my freshman year in college, back there at Stockton State in the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful New Jersey, I remember I lived on the first door of H Dorm, and on the third floor of H Dorm was two guys, Frank Torriello and Stuart Rosenthal. And they were from North Jersey, and I was from Central Jersey. So the guys from North Jersey got New York radio stations. Those guys from uh, South Jersey got basically Philly stations. And they turned me on to my guest band back then because we didn't hear the cool stuff. New York got all the cool stuff. And my guest today is John King from Gang of Four. How you doing, John? Pretty good. Hi. So I got to ask you, how excited are you about the upcoming uh, North American tour? Uh. Well, it's fantastic. I mean, I'm so I'm genuinely excited. I mean, it's been it's been a, a long time uh, to to do this thing. It's uh, been uh, for the entire world a really uh, tough couple of years. I, I've uh, loved America since I first came to the US when I was 18 years old, and uh, um, uh, so I've always had great fun uh, there. And of course, having a band with uh, Hugo. You know, original family member with me, with uh, Sarah Lee, who played bass on the, on the Songs of the Free and Hard, and then she joined B-52s. And then, of course, the legendary David Pacho on guitar, who's uh, filling um, in, in the uh, guitar role. It's fantastic. So, And the uh, rehearsals, uh, which we uh, had in um, Massachusetts during in January, were fantastic. You know, and uh, so it's, it's, it's awesome, yeah. Now, how did you get the two members how did you put this band together how did it all formulate because you know when you look at your timeline you haven't played for a long time so how, how did this all happen because it's it's real i it always fascinates me when bands like come back together and they bring people tell me the whole story how this was it just an idea that you wanted to tour or what happened well uh i had wanted to tour i mean uh as is uh, as you probably know andy gill and i had not uh, had fallen out with each other i didn't uh uh, approve of him uh, touring uh, under, under the band name for a long time and he and I had really not been on speaking terms but at the same time uh, you know we were like uh, one stage like blood brothers you know so you get really sort of uh, um, uh, you've got very intertwined lives you know socially and emotionally and professionally and it was obviously a great uh, tragedy when he, he died two years ago um, and so there was it, it was something I would have liked to have happened. I would have liked to have had a reconciliation with him. Uh, and I think he felt the same. Um, but when COVID happened, of course, probably what killed him, uh, when COVID happened, uh, the the, uh, the world uh, changed, and it particularly changed in a disastrous way for anyone in the creative industries and musicians. I mean, absolute disaster. So it was something that, you know, had been a, a, an idea that had been bubbling under. And um, we um, also knew that a lot of people were very, very keen to, to see the band, um, especially when uh, the box set came out. I mean, I, I uh, moved my energies to uh, working on, on that thing, um, which um, uh, filled a lot of my time. Uh, and it, the more I worked on that, and this was a, it really was a, a work of love. It was a love for both uh, the, uh, the things that we'd done together and the other people, and of course for our fans. You know, I mean, we really, I, I wanted to do something that was actually worth having. Uh, I, and um, so that became more and more interesting. And I became 
interested again in, in my own work and I think you probably have found with the people you've spoken to that a lot of um, uh, creative people don't really like looking at their own work they don't really like listening to their own work um, and uh, for example on the box set I still haven't listened to the cassette tape. I can't bring myself to <laughs> it's, listen it's, to the it's, it's funny. It's funny you say that because in the late 80s, early 90s, I was a touring stand-up comedian, and I did a show the other night for the first time in like two and a half, three years, and people were like, did you tape it? I said, no, because I'm, I'm not going to listen to it because you sit there and you pick yourself apart, and even though it sounds great, you go, oh, shit, I messed that up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so... Uh, so I, I, st I can't bring myself to listen to those demos. And um, uh, the only one I've actually listened to of the demos was the, the song, which is a really, really early song called Elevator, which, as it turns out, is really good fun. <laughs> what, made you, what made you decide to listen to that? Uh, just because my, my management and Hugo would say, this is a great song. And, it's, it's, and I said, wow. And it's, and it's, it's a song um, we used to do, a, like, Hundreds of other bands we used to do cover versions of uh, Sweet Jane, and I think it was like a sort of you know one of those songs where you just got a verse and a chorus and a verse and a chorus, and it's over in two and a half minutes. Uh, and uh, yeah, but I haven't listened to the other things. And so the the, the 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 putting it together that became more and more of a thing. And then when the um, the box set came out, and, and uh, you know as you know it sold out almost immediately. There were a lot of people who said, well, you know why didn't you play you know there was that kind of thing we, and again with covid we said well it's impossible we can't do it how can we do this and uh each time it seemed like things were loosening up um things tightened up and uh, particularly uh, uh, uh difficult for anyone who is not a u.s citizen with a green card it wasn't until last november that anyone was allowed to come into the united states so it was it wasn't even uh, an idea about an idea. It wasn't possible to do to do something like that because I was not actually allowed to come into the US. I mean, I, I think it's the longest uh, period in my life that I hadn't actually visited the United States. I think it was. Um, I think I've been to the US more or less every year of my adult life. You know, I. I uh, you know, what do you, you know, love? What do you? What do you love so much about the US? Well, when I first came, when I was 18, uh, I first came and uh, uh, a mystery about this. I knew nothing at all about the US except Marvel Comics. And uh, I, uh, when I was a kid, I mean, I used to have, you know, the first, uh, I don't know, first 20 versions of Spider-Man. You know, they, they used to come over to the UK in sort of bulk and I would buy everyone that I could get. And at the back of it, they used to have all these little small adverts for like, you could get x-ray glasses you could see through someone's clothing and and uh, uh and all of these things like you know guns and rifles and toys and things that that seem miraculous also um it seemed like a multicolored place you know really sort of lively and interesting and um a lot of the art that i really uh, loved was u.s post post-war art um a uh, big fan of uh, you know what I suppose we call now old-fashioned modern art. So I really like American abstract painting. So I really, really was, it was a really important thing to me. Um, when I first came, actually on the tour, the very first date is, is in Buffalo, which I don't think we've ever played in before. In fact, I'm sure we haven't. 
Um, but that was the very first place in the US I ever went to. Um, uh, the, showing my ignorance of the US, my, my love for it or my attraction to the US mixed with my stupidity uh, was that a friend of mine's father, sorry, a friend of mine's girlfriend's father was in the oil business and they moved from the UK to Oklahoma City because that's where oil is. So my friend thought he wanted to go and be close to her and he got a job in Buffalo which showed his, his ignorance of, uh, <laughs> of American geography. I, uh, he said, why don't you come over? Because he was bored being on, on his own. So I, um, I, I worked in some um, brick factory or something and uh, raised the money. And I thought that Buffalo, New York was like, a, like Brooklyn. Well, I didn't even know Brooklyn exists, but I thought it was all like, you know, I don't know, Hampstead, London. I thought it was actually part of New... I thought it was New York City. I didn't think there was a, didn't know there was a place. Uh, so uh, I flew into Ken Heathrow, Kennedy Airport, and, uh, and I said, "How do I get to Buffalo?" And they said, "Well, that's you know, 400 miles away." <laughs> and uh, but it but it was great because the Buffalo had the Albright Knox Gallery, which which had fantastic uh, art in it. And then then drove down to DC, and then I hitchhiked up to via Philadelphia up to New York. Uh, you know, when everyone hitchhiked, so I had a great time. No, I, I loved them. I loved. I've always loved America. Yeah. Yeah. So the and band, all my favorite bands. What's that? All my favorite bands are, were at that time. You know, I loved, I loved the band, Bob Dylan and Jimi Hendrix. You know, and uh, uh, it, it was. Uh, it, it seemed like a great rock and roll place. You know, and Detroit. You know, I loved. I loved Town of Motown and the Stooges and MC Five. You know, it was just like a list of. Of, of gods to me. So the band we were talking about the band before I I went off topic. Uh, the band. Now, so how did you guys all get together again? What was what oh, yeah. what happened? Uh, well, what happened then was it looked like it was possible to uh, to tour. Uh, our agents felt it would be possible to do that. They thought there was going to be um, a loosening up. Uh, Dave Allen and Hugo and I were really tight together, but Dave had, for personal reasons, he, he didn't feel he was able to, to, to go through with it. it was, there's no, there's been no falling out, but, but he doesn't feel he's, he's able to do, to do the tour. Uh, and so we thought, well, obvious thing would be Sarah Lee, because Sarah Lee did record songs of the free, you know, and, and hard and toured with us. And she, you know, we had a wonderful time with her. Um, as you know, she joined the B-52 straight away after that and would tour with them for many years. And uh, so it was just a long shot. Hugo phoned her up and said, um, you know, how's things going and uh, what are you up to? And she was so thrilled to, to be asked and we were so thrilled she'd accept. And so with her on board, which gave it a real authenticity, we wanted to make sure that it was a really authentic experience. Then the, uh, the conundrum of, of uh, who might play the guitar and uh, Hugo really was responsible for all of this because it, uh, uh, Hugo had a, a very good friend of his in uh, Athens, Georgia, said to him, what, what about David Pachel? And uh, what, you know, did, would, he, would he play with us? Because I think, because he's such a fantastic uh, musician. And um, he, he, he just jumped at it and we just jumped at working with him. And, and uh, we actually sent, said, would you mind doing a kind of, not exactly an audition, but a tryout, you know, playing along some of the recorded stuff. And two or three days, every two or three days, he'd send through 
uh, recordings of him playing and little stuff like that. He took the job so seriously and so uh, righteously. You know, he really wanted to make sure that uh, that Andy's uh, heritage was really, really um, uh, given proper respect to, but with his own flavour on top of it. And so that was how it came about, really. I mean, I have to say, it's, all, it's really all down to Hugo's uh, um, uh, known people's phone numbers, I guess. Now, where are you all located? Because I'm just thinking about practicing and or stuff. Where, where, like, you're in, you're in England. Where are the I'm other the three? Only, I'm the only Brit. Uh, uh, well, I'm not the only. I'm the only other person who doesn't live in the U.S. Uh, Hugo lives in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Uh, Sarah lives in uh, upstate New York, in a place quite near, relatively near Woodstock. Um, and David lives in Los Angeles. So when we rehearsed in in uh, January, we rehearsed in uh, in Massachusetts. Um, and uh, uh, so essentially, it's it's everybody bar me lives and works in the U.S. What was the rehearsal process like? Because you, you haven't played together for a long time. Did it take? A while to feel the groove, or did you sit there and once you, for you three, not David, but for you, once you three started jamming together, it sort of clicked back into the old days. I think yes, exactly. I mean, I, I, I don't know how you felt like when you did your recent new gig, but but some things. I remember, I remember how this 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 should be, or how this feels, and what what I think we all really wanted was to feel good about it so when we started playing you know you you know you kick things around you except just going to be scruffy but the 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 scruffiness was it's a great pleasure and uh you know it's not like you because you don't really want to do a sort of um a version of stars in your eyes or something uh you 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 really want it to to mean something and um uh i um uh, i, I so you know you, you start just just knocking things around and not being very pernickety about about stuff but enjoying the enjoying making this righteous noise and um and then after a while you sort of you feel you've nailed the songs and then you move into that other zone you know the other zone where the songs uh the songs start playing you rather than you, rather the other way around you know you, you feel you're, you're occupied by the thing and uh, and again, you, you will know, having done stand-up, that uh, sometimes at the end of the show, you you wonder what just happened. Uh, you, you've been you've been there for however long, an hour and a half or something, and you can't quite remember how it, how it went. But it, but it, if it's a good gig, it, it feels really great because you because you've you've just been transported. So I think by the after a couple of weeks, I think the song started playing us. And then, then we knew we were in a good place. Now, David had sent you the tapes, but was it hard at first getting used to him? Because once again, he's the, the guitarist. He's newer. You know, you had the past relationship with Andy, and that's you know that's what you were used to when you're bringing at your younger ages. How was it getting him into the band? Did you, even though he sent you the videos and you saw he was great, was it? Did it take a while for you to get in sync with him? Um, actually, I think at the beginning he played a he played a more important role, I think, than me, Hugo or Sarah, in that he really, really worked to nail the songs. 
I mean, uh, I think, uh, speaking for myself, I was, I was scruffier about the music than he was. I mean, even though, obviously, uh, uh, I've performed these songs hundreds and hundreds of times, um, uh, sometimes you don't perform them right. And uh, even like song structures, one of the conundrums we had was, is it, is it, are we doing a, a version of the recorded work or a version of, of the thing that it became when we'd ironed out some of those um, uh, problems, you know, uh, that we'd seen on the recorded work, you know, how you move from one bit to another bit, especially in, in uh, the Gang of Four songs where we very often don't have, or probably most of the time, don't have a two, five, one chord structure, you know, uh, and we're not, we're not doing that, those sorts of triggers. I mean, if you're going, yeah, from the uh, dominant to the tonic, you know, you know where you are, but if there is no dominant and there's no tonic, uh, then you start thinking about how it works. Um, and so David was, He'd, he'd learned, he'd say, this is the one I've learned. And uh, so, so we, would, we would say, oh, that's great. So it would define what we were doing. Then, uh, then, then we'd start saying, well, I don't know if this is, this is what we should be doing. Because let's, and then we would look up sometimes, or quite often, onto the, I don't know, the hundreds of videos on, on, uh, on YouTube and say, this was, I think this was how we used to do it. Um, and... Um, that was uh, that was quite that was really interesting. I'd, you know the 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 nuances of things and and the sort of the way you make them work live um, uh, is is often not not really like the the um, uh, the live experience. Uh, one of the uh, the recorded experience. I mean, one of the things that we found was um, that certainly. Most of the songs we're going to perform are from the first two albums because that was the thing that inspired it. But, but there are songs on um, songs of the free, you know, like We Live As We Dream Alone and I Love a Man in a Uniform and uh, Call Me Up, you know, great, great songs. And they needed uh, BVs on them. And so one of the things that I'm really pleased on the tour is apart from the four of us, we've got some brilliant guest musicians standing in. I mean, Dolly McDonald uh, is going to be doing uh, guest BVs right the way from New York right there down to Texas because she just wants she just wants for the fun and Dale uh, toured with us when we did the uh, songs the free album in the distant past and uh sensational singer you know and um we've got other other uh other people sitting in so I mean, Sally Timms for example from the Mekon is going to join us in, in Chicago you know uh, I think we might have um you know uh, all sorts of other people coming in for so the, sh the show should all be incredibly good fun with people sitting in uh for from a, the backing vocals front as well as us you know uh doing it uh, yeah. now what got you into music because you said when you were 18 you went over you, you went over to buffalo but when and you said that you know it's funny you mentioned the bands you mentioned which where you love like the band and all that, which are nothing like your music. When yeah. when did you start this love affair with music? Were you a, did you sing as a kid, or when did you? And when did you find out you had a, a voice? Well, I think uh, it was funny. I mean, for me, I mean, I I, uh, I came from a quite poor working class family, 
and my father was an electrician. We didn't have any books in the house, but I had got a scholarship to a, a posh English private school. So I, it was a sort of an, an oddity there. At home, we didn't have a record player. We couldn't afford uh, a record player. And, but at school in the art department, when I was age 11, the, the older boys would play music during the art lesson. And, they would, and the, the first thing I heard that I, that I changed my life was hearing Highway 61 revisited. Uh, and I'd never heard that ever on the radio. And again, in Britain, there were very few radio stations. There were, uh, uh, pop music, or rock music, was just not played at all on the radio, really, you know, or, or only in, in, in passing. And we had this phenomenon called pirate radio, which you, you will know about, where a boat was parked off of the uh, continental shelf of, of, the, of the UK and then broadcast from the middle of the sea. This pop music we all used to listen to. So when I heard Dylan uh, singing that particular song, it really, I really think it changed my life. You know, I thought that the, the subject that he was writing about, uh, the sound of it, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't making an effort to be uh, smooth in, in any way. And he was sounded angry and annoyed and he's pissed off and, and funny. And um, that inspired me and I became uh, really, really interested in words actually then. So whenever I bought a, 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 an album, the first thing I did, you know, whether it was Tommy by the Quadrophenia or whatever, or by the Beatles, I'd, I'd write all the lyrics down. And I'd, because it was quite hard then to, to work that out. But when I, and I, one of the major reasons for going to Leeds University, I went up to Leeds University from um, the school we were at, was a place called Seven Oaks School. And it had this very vigorous art department. And there was me, and Kevin Lyser, who was the first guitarist of the Mekons in one year, uh, with Adam Curtis, the documentary filmmaker, and Paul Greengrass, the uh, feature filmmaker, who did all the, the Bourne conspiracies. So there's me, Adam, Paul, Andy, and there was Tom Greenhouse, Mark White, uh, from the Mekons in the, in the year below. So we're all in this little same, same group of people studying art. And I went to Leeds because Leeds University was an A-list concert venue. You know, the, the Who's Live at Leeds was recorded there. Okay. I saw Bob Marley in a the refectory, which is a 900-seat room. Led Zeppelin played there, Roxy Music, Paul McCartney, it, in a 900-seat thing. And I got in for nothing, because Hugo, who we met, who I met in my first year, he, uh, he loved music as well. And at his school, he'd been promoting uh, concerts. I mean, he put, on, um, he put on Genesis at his school. <laughs> playing to like 500 people this is you know in the early days and he went to Leeds and so every week we saw every single band that was that was going on tour around the UK and Leeds was a, the, an A-list venue so so every week I saw at least two major acts and it might be everyone from Elvis Costello when the stiff tours happened to to whatever so that was thrilling but what really and Andy and I had a, we had a really, you know, shitty rooms next to each other in some horrible shared house. And we used to sort of write songs together, which was a bit like uh, Dr. Feelgood. I mean, that, the band that we loved and revered the most, the British band, was a pub band called Dr. Feelgood. And he and I, would, he'd have an acoustic guitar and we had a little cassette player. We used to write songs that were a bit like, to be honest, a bit like that elevator track. You know, we'd, we'd write sort of songs like that. You've got to start somewhere. 
and um, it sort of flipped when um, when I was um, in my second year at Leeds. I had got a research grant to write. I'd applied for one research grant to write about Jasper Johns, the American pop artist in New York. And so I, I got this grant and um, arranged to go and stay with a friend of a friend called Mary Harron, who was uh, later became the director of American Psycho and Betty Blue. But then she was a sort of she was just a not just she was a journalist with uh, New York Punk magazine. So and Andy said, "Oh, can I come along as well?" And uh, I said, "Yeah, sure. Why not?" I mean, um, and he blagged a, a grant to do a photographic study of Gothic architecture in northern France. So he came with me to New York, and we, and because Mary had just broken up with the drummer of the then unknown Patty Smith group, uh, we got into CVGBs for nothing every night because she lived in St Mark's Place in in uh, New York, and you know CVG was just a few blocks away. So every night we went down there and we hung out with you know Richard Hell and the Voidoids and and uh, you know the Dead Boys and uh, and uh, Talking Heads and all these unknown New York bands. I mean, I've still got the first four or five issues of New York Punk magazine in the loft, along with my Marvel comics. And um, everyone assumed that Andy and I were in a band, you know, and then we came back and uh, we saw the Ramones in New York, supported by Iggy Pop uh, uh, at the, I think it was at the Palladium, and came back and thought, this is, this is great. And punk rock was happening in the UK, but but so we thought, well, well let's 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 have a go, you know, and uh, we did. Now, what were your first gigs gigs like? Like how I always wonder, like you know, the punk you go from getting these gigs and then you end up getting a record deal. How was that transition? I mean, I, I want to know. I mean, those early gigs were they just harsh? Because they always say the punk crowds in England were just so brutal. Well, yeah. It was, it was. Um, we were we were pretty lucky in that we were ignored for the first two years of our existence. I mean, we um, we didn't get reviewed. Uh, the music press was then very very oriented around London, and and Leeds was about two hundred miles north of, of of London. So none of the journalists went there. So we were lucky enough to sort of just first of all just get used to it all. But of course, our very first show, no one would, no one, of course, would give us a gig because no one had heard of us, you know, and we'd, we'd never played. So we did that thing, which, which a lot of other uh, punk fans did, is we, we put on our own show. And uh, so there was a, a derelict uh, building called the Corn Exchange in Leeds, which we could hire for, you know, 20, 20 bucks or something like that, um, basically for nothing, just to cover the cost of electricity. And um, so we promoted it ourselves, um, along with, um, there was a local a guy called John Keenan who was starting up the um, first punk shows in, in, in Leeds. And so we did it entirely ourselves. And part of the sort of aesthetic was very, uh, uh, I think, minimal, because of course we couldn't really afford very much. So it's like just, we borrowed some floodlights, you know, and, and put them in. So it was just, just one or two white lights. And, and it was, it was really random because there wasn't really a scene in Leeds at that time. And, but there was a sense of everyone was waiting for something to happen. Uh, so when we did that, that 
they seem to do do quite well. And we um, uh, we, we spent a lot of the time, to, you know, playing with anyone that we could. And and at that time, you uh, support bands, you know, were just often you'd have to pay to be a support band. Um, and so we were we were just sort of desperate to play whenever we could and wherever we could. One of the conundrums we had was um, you often got charged to, to use the PA if you were a support band. Uh, I don't know if that happened in, in America, but in Britain it was quite brutal in that you go along to some, I'm a, can I record? Oh, I don't know. But bands would say, you turn up and they say, you're the support band, give us, give us uh, 20, 20 quid. And you think, well, we're not even being paid. You know? <laughs> uh, so give 20 quid to use the PA. So we decided to build our own PA system to put in front of the PA systems of the main bands who couldn't pay them. And uh, we did this by building our own PA. Uh, we, um, there was a, a dump, dump site near us, and so we found a big uh, wardrobe big, uh, made of plywood, and we took that to pieces. And um, Andy Corrigan, who was uh, a flatmate of mine, who became one of the singers of the Mekons, who was our sound engineer, He's, he had this book called, you know, How to Make a PA System. And uh, so we, uh, we uh, cut it down and we made, we got the drivers had been part of a uh, uh, Second World War airplanes, uh, broadcasting to the troops. Uh, and, so we, the, and so the drivers for the speakers were from air, Second World War planes. The amplifiers were from uh, the, the army in the 1940s. And it had, they had like a, thumb with uh, fuses in it, which were long, long, uh, redundant. And the only way we could fix that was we put cigarette ends in it with uh, bits of uh, wire around it. And so we built a PA that was, it's, it was like a, one of the South London reggae sound systems. Unfortunately, it was so big, this is a spinal tap moment, it was so big we couldn't get it out of the door. We hadn't, we forgot it, so I had to cut it to pieces and rebuild it. So the, we were, that was how we were, so we were very determined, and we had this uh, and, and our friends, um, I shared a flat with Mark White and Andy Corrigan, who were the two Mekon singers. We were all a little crew. And uh, we just went, just everything that we could do, we did until we met the Buzzcocks. And we, the Buzzcocks were playing somewhere up, up north. And they, they were from Manchester, which is only about 30 miles from Leeds. And um, Dave Allen, who used to really book all our dates, Dave phoned up and said, can we play, can we play? And they said, oh, okay, you can come along. And we turned up. And um, they were really, really great to us. And, and we, we played the show. They didn't ask for any money. And then about a week later, they said, we would like you to come and support us in Europe. And, uh, and then that led to the first tour of the US, with, which was 50%, I don't know, 50% with the Buzzcocks and 50% on our own. Um, and it was that, uh, uh, I think it was just that thing of just playing all the time, you know, when, whenever you can. Uh, I don't have to answer your question. Now, what was it What was it about when you toured the U.S.? Were you guys in a little van? I mean, in, when your first tour, I mean, was it just hellacious? Like, you're loving it because you're playing music, but you're probably like, wait a second. I mean, what was your first tour like? Because it's so, it's so different now. And I always say, when I used to do comedy on the road, there wasn't GPS, so we had to read a map. 
And if you got lost, there wouldn't be anybody around me be like, holy shit, where am I going to go? What was it like for you, that a guy, you guys coming over on that first tour? Well, on the first tour, our, our agent was um, a wonderful bloke called Ian Copeland, who was the uh, creative force behind FBI, Frontier Booking International, which booked all of the new new wave acts. So our, our stable mates, you know, were the, were the police and Squeeze and, and 999 and all those kind of acts and Elvis Costello. And um, uh, we all played the same size venues. Uh, I think the police went on to do slightly larger venues over time. And, uh, but uh, in fact, the, the first day we arrived, we arrived, we arrived in, uh, at the airport and we had a gig that night on the day that we, I know, the day after we arrived. And so we, Ian turned up with an Econoline bag, with the hard back line in the back, uh, which had been used till the day before by Squeeze. They'd finished their tour. And so we picked up the van that Squeeze had done it. Squeeze, being uh, mischievous imps, poured a load of sugar into the gas tank, uh, which meant that the, the very first show that we did was in Philadelphia. In fact, in the book, in the um, uh, in the box set, there's a photo of us, the very first show that we ever did. We, but we were we left um, Manhattan in this thing. Me, Dave, Andy, and Hugo. Hugo's brother was our was our guitar tech, and a guy called Rob Ball was our manager. So six of us driving on. We, we didn't have any money, so we had to pay the first show to be able to pay for a motel room, two motel rooms. Two beds. So every other night we got a bed on our own. We always had a share bed. So we drove down and broke down in the Lincoln Tunnel because Squeeze had put sugar in the gas tank. Uh, it then restarted, which is a characteristic apparently. We found it afterwards of sugar in the petrol tank. Uh, it then broke down again. The promoter sent up some hippie in a van up from Philadelphia with like a, where we all squeezed into. And we didn't arrive at the venue until quarter to 20 to 1 in the morning in Philadelphia, which was to us amazing. It was totally sold out because Damaged Goods EP had come out. Absolutely ran. The police were there. The fire brigade were there. Uh, uh, they were they were threatening to close the whole thing down, but they were worried about there being a, a riot. And we had this uh, uh, wonderful um, uh, support band, Pylon, had come up from Athens. And they had to do two sets. Two sets and they were saying, no, they were on their way. And as you see, there were no mobile phones. Uh, there were no GPS, and so there was no way of, of actually communicating. Maybe say, you know, we're 20 minutes out or whatever, because you'd have to leave the highway to try and find a, a phone booth. But we turned up and played, I think, about 20 minutes, 15 minutes before the police closed it all down, and it was a fantastic thing. And the promoter gave us all the money, and we could have somebody to sleep. And uh, we played doubles. We played all around America. When when we weren't playing with the Buzzcocks, we played in. Um, uh, we should often go on at 10 and then do another show at midnight. Uh, so we do two, two shows now. I think in 30 days, I think we played about 45 times. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> so it was, uh, so it was quite a, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was really intense. And I, you know, you said, wonder what it was like. I, I've been surprised that no one has ever made any kind of movie or TV series about about that time and that experience, of, which was so distinctive, you know. Uh, yeah. Now, the album Entertainment got rave reviews. 
when you started, how long did it for you to put that album together? Because you do most of the lyrics, and, and I want to know, where do you, because your music has been called political, and, you know, does your lyric writing come from your early love for Dylan, because Dylan was like that, or how did you evolve into a great songwriter, and then, when especially when it came to your first album? Yeah, well, well, I mean, I wrote. Well, when, if you hear my voice, I wrote. It's, I wrote all the lyrics that that, that you hear my voice uh, singing on, and uh, I, I suppose, what what I would do is sometimes there would be some um, some moment when you sort of find something. Comical, it's not actually comical, but there was on a song Ether on Entertainment. There's this, uh, the mysterious last nine of that was the, there might be oil under rock hall. And uh, rock hall is a, is a, a tiny rock uh, in the North Atlantic, which the British in the 1950s um, had uh, landed Royal Marines on to live on it for sort of a period of time to declare it was British territory. And it was—it seemed like it was just a guano-stained rock surrounded by sea. It's the size of an apartment building. You know, it's not—it's not—it's not a large piece of land. It doesn't show up on any map. It's uninhabitable. Were it not for the landing of the Royal Marines on there, who lived in some kind of space capsule on it for a period of time, and um, I thought this was uh, very, um, uh, to me, it seemed quite funny. Uh, uh, and and. The, the very last line of that song is, you know, there may be oil under rock hall, you might be paranoid, being rather like Nostradamus. In fact, it looks like there probably is oil under rock hall. Uh, but that's been disputed by Ireland and Iceland and, and Denmark ever since that happened. But the rest of the song was sort of idea, you know, the idea of, you know, that we uh, have these uh, comfortable lives which we want and we enjoy and we aspire to. But there's a, a dark price often to pay against it. And so in that particular one, that was a, a Andy and I wrote different lyrics. It was a call and response thing. I mean, we, we were both big fans of the blues, you know, well, Chicago blues particularly. Mm -hmm. But so I wrote the uh, You're Trapped in Heaven lifestyle side of things, what life is what we would hope it to be or want it to be. And then the other side was the dark truth at that time of... of um, uh, the uh, the war in the uh, civil war in Northern Ireland, and um, but other songs though came from. You, you mentioned Dylan, and I I, I I remember once he was saying he he was never sure that he wrote songs that they wrote him, but sometimes a line would just come to me, and I'd write it down. I had I had a, a little book like um, a home is a tourist. I remember that. I said, that's, that's an interesting. That's an interesting thing. I sort of wrote it down, and the song sort of wrote itself. Or natural's not in it. Um, uh, if you have a, a unifying idea, and again, you being a comic, you get it. So I don't know whether the gag, you get the punchline first, or the punchline emerges from it. You know, um, and sometimes, yeah, it's it's like set up gag, set up gag in a song. Um, or I, I, um, I think when I was doing the um, the box set, it, it, it made me think about how, how I'd written some of the songs, and 
what one of the songs on on not on entertainment but on um uh, solid gold uh, is um Andy and I have been playing pool with um, a couple of truckers in Barney's Beanery in Los Angeles. And uh, we were quite good at, at pool because we can, you know, musicians are generally quite good at pool because they haven't got anything else to do. And um, uh, we were playing with these guys and they were quite drunk and really lousy. And it was winner stays on. So they were paying to play us on the table. And they were saying these things. So I found really, you know, I moved from one place to the next. I hope they keep down the price of gas. You know, I shoot the best. Are you talking dog? And I, I wrote after this this drinking session with um, and this pool session with these guys. I sort of wrote all this stuff down, which really what they'd said to me while we were playing pool. Uh, and uh, uh, I don't know if that's a good answer. <laughs> but, oh, no, it is. I always because I always wonder where inspiration comes from. You know, because you said with the jokes, you know. For for me, it just pops into my head, and then I go, okay, you know what, this will work, and then if you overthink it, then and you try to tool it too much because it's you, you, it usually doesn't work. You always go with your first instinct. That's for comedy because yeah. comedy's you know, you know, thirty second bit for a song, it's a lot different. Comedy means just me and a mic. You have to write the music and you have to yeah. do everything. Well, I think one of the songs that I, I mean, I, I, again. <clears throat> Not, not originally, but Joni Mitchell's uh, Blue album is full of most incredible. Uh, what, the music and the uh, sorry, the, the music and the lyrics are, are of a piece. But a song like uh, This Flight Tonight, uh, the opening line is, you know, look out the left. The captain said, down there's where we're going to land. And you think it sounds exactly as if that's what she heard, and that that kicks you off. And then you write the song about regret and wishing you hadn't got on the plane, and you wish. You know, You've gone a different direction, and I think, yeah, I mean, I've, I've never done stand up. Stand up, I think, is much more brutal than music because you haven't got a chance to apologise. <laughs> you, know, you, you know, you're gonna. Um, I think that, but if you follow the logic of your own um, thinking, um, the song can take you takes you on a journey as the writer, and, and if you follow the logic of the song. You end up somewhere else. Again, think of Joni Mitchell. You know, the last time I saw Richard was Detroit in 68, and he told me all romantics suffer from the same fate. And then it goes on and on and on. And she's constructed a, a poem about being in a late-night cafeteria where this awkward and ugly, ugly awkward conversation comes about. And um, but, but sometimes... Um, Again, which I, I think we all found funny that uh, in um, uh, in Leeds, along with every other city in the UK, we were all fairly uh, sure that we would be obliterated in a nuclear war. Um, the uh, there were, I mean, here we are with the similar tensions happening at the moment in Ukraine and, and, and Russia. But at that time, the, um, the Soviets had moved their Scud missiles into East Germany. The Americans moved in their, their Pershing missiles across Europe. And um, the British government was so uh, um, concerned about how we were going to survive this inevitable uh, Armageddon that everyone got post every single person in the household got posted a book called You and the Bomb. So we had a personal relationship with the bomb. 
and there was one of um, the bomb and Leeds, and uh, I, I reproduced a little cover of it in the in the box set. It was what to do when you're hit. There's no kind of if involved, and so the you know it was there was the um, initial blast area where everything is is uh, incinerated, and then there was the outer blast area where you were definitely going to die from radiation poisoning, and then there was the bit outside, you know, the cursed earth, and um, but the useful advice was you know fill big uh, plastic bags with your clothing, pile them up on top of the table and get under the table. This is to, to defend yourself against a nuclear war. And uh, and uh, so uh, uh, I wrote that song in the ditch because I, I found it actually, it was quite blackly funny. I mean, <laughs> bearing in mind you had 20 minutes to do this from launch to hitting leads. Uh, and uh, so every single household was sent this thing in, uh, in um, uh, 19... 78 or something like that. Google sent this, this, this thing. Now, since we're talking about the military, where did man in a uniform come from? And was that banned from the radio? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, that was the second one of our, the second of our songs that was banned. I, um, Andy and I, you know, when we came to the third album, you know, Andy said, you know, we just haven't had a hit, have we? And I said, well, <laughs> And uh, so, you know, let's just try and write a song with, with chords in it, you know, like chord progressions in it, things like that. Which, which is what we used to do when we started off. But, but, but it sounded like us. It seemed like a contradictory thing. And I, um, and I, uh, the, uh, it, it, you know, it's a well-known phrase. I love someone, someone in a man in a uniform is quite commonly said. But to turn it into a sort of uh, something that was a bit camp. It was quite. It was quite. Um, you know, it, it was because uh, my sympathy was was with the, with the guy in the uniform. You know, I didn't. It wasn't was hostile to to that character, but it was it was the you know the lack of seemed to me you know without being too boring about it the lack of economic opportunities meant often that was the only thing that you could do. You know, that if you if you had a lousy lousy uh, home life and lousy opportunities and a lousy education, then actually it's a really sensible thing to do. Uh, but there was overlaid with it was this, this, this uh, uh, sexual sort of side to it. You know, obviously there were, you know, the girls, they love to see you shoot. It was, it was a, it was a kind of a gag thing. And um, so I was very pleased with that because I thought, I thought it sounded like a pop song, and 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 you know, I thought you know, this this sounds like a pop song, and it got a lot of airplay. Uh, and it was on in the UK. Um, it was on Radio One, which is the the, the nationwide uh, pop station, was playing it on um, maximum rotation. So it was really sort of doing really well. And um, uh, I think in modern sales terms, it would probably have been number one now. But I mean, at that time, singles were selling a lot more by volume. So it was doing pretty good and I climbed the charts. But without knowing uh, anything at all about um, the geography of post-colonial Britain, there was a place called the Falkland Islands or Las Malvinas and, uh, from the Argentinian thing. And the Argentinians invaded the British colony of the Falklands and declared it to be part of Argentina. And a war broke out between the UK and uh, Argentina. We... Uh, we went to do a TV show and um, uh, to promote this single, which is going to go, they 
sure, yeah, top, top 20, top 10. And uh, the producer said, really glad to see you here, but you can't perform that song. You can perform anything you like. We said, but we're, we're here because this is the this single's charting. And they said, no, our boys are going to go into uh, the paratroopers are going to land They've been that night. And they said, we can't do it. And uh, it was taken off the air. Uh, I mean, I, uh, I was sort of, I was really genuinely surprised by that. And until I met a few weeks later, I met Stevie Langer, who was the one of the backing singers on that track. She was Mutt Langer's ex-wife, uh, you know, the, the rock producer. And she, they were doing um, a Christmas special, and she was wearing red coat outfit like that you'd see in the American the uh, American Wars of Independence. The, and uh, I said, "What? What's all this about?" She said, "Oh, we're we're doing a medley of Second World War songs." And I said. Yeah, but why are you wearing a red coat outfit? She said, well, they, they thought that the uniform would be too provocative. So it showed the censorship that was happening. Anyway, and, and, uh, yeah, uniform was banned, tourists was banned. You know, we, we got banned from going to Portugal. <laughs> we got, uh, there, was a, there were a lot of tensions then. Uh, and um, we were sort of often in the thick of it in the uh, part of big part of the rock against racism um, movement. And I think we were, we were seen as sort of um, threats to society. Now, what happened with you and Andy in, in the early years? Were there just creative differences or, or was that, I mean, when you guys made the first split, what, I mean, you guys, was it sometimes people say, you're young, you've been on the road together, you know, you're just learning all this. I mean, what happens? Because, you know, you guys have a popularity. You've influenced so many musicians. What happened? Well, he and I had been at school together. I mean, I'd known him since I was 14 or 15. My wife had known him since she was 11. So they were, so I'd known him forever. And we uh, were, they went to the same university. We wrote together. Uh, we toured a lot. Uh, and the when we got round to the fourth album, I I I felt at that time that we'd sort of run out of steam, and I wasn't very uh, I wasn't very sure that it was a great project. And Andy wanted to carry on to do something that was a bit more smooth and a bit more produced, the the, the hard album, which he wanted to produce himself. And I I uh, we had a, a manager at that time who was an absolute crook and a creep. Bennett Glotzer, who um, uh, was really old school and, and could not be trusted. And um, that we made that record, which I, I didn't, uh, didn't enjoy at all. And so I, I, I wanted to support Andy's vision, but I didn't really, all the other albums I'd co-produced, but that one I, I, I didn't at all, and I didn't like it. And it wasn't really sour grapes. And then we toured, and I, our manager stole all our money. Um, and um, he used to manage Frank Zappa as well, and he um, had defrauded the Zappa estate as well, I believe, of quite a lot of money. And um, so, and it coincided with Andy getting very ill. He had um, testicular cancer. So that was actually the reason we stopped working together. Was he? We we did a farewell tour to pay our bills, 
and Andy went straight into Mount Sinai Hospital and he had major surgery. And he was very unwell for a long time. But straight after that, we carried on working together, but not as the band. So I decided I didn't, I felt Gang of Four ran out of steam. He and I as, as friends and musicians hadn't. And then we wrote, um, we wrote a song on the Karate Kid together um, after Gang of Four had ended. So, so we wrote um, on that first legendary film, <laughs> which, uh, which was quite a big film at the time. Quite a big movie. Um, I got offered two scripts at that time uh, to write a song on. One was uh, an incredibly attractive female welder from Pittsburgh who longs to become a dancer. <laughs> oh, man. And, uh, and the other one was a guy who learns to become a kung fu master by painting fences and polishing cars. And I thought the second one sounded more realistic. So I, I didn't do uh, uh, that, that one. Uh, <laughs> But uh, uh, so did the Karate Kid, and then um, he and I sort of went in different sort of directions, you know, for for quite a time. But we came back together every now and again. We do we do things together, you know. I I, I, I we just we wrote for um, like a lot of musicians do for sort of some TV shows, wrote the title music for things like that, but not as Gang of Four. And occasionally we went on tour. We do a, an, another album together, none of which uh, really worked brilliantly well. But I mean, we toured uh, in the US with, with Public Enemy and um, Sisters of Mercy with the Sheds tour with, with those guys. And I, I was, was and am a big fan of Public Enemy, so I was really pleased. And, and I like them a lot. They were nice guys to, to, to work with. Um, and um, so we came in and out. And then, then, there was a lot, then he and I really fell out, and really, his, I, I didn't like, he was an alcoholic, so I didn't really like his, um, I didn't find it pleasurable to work with him. When I got to sort of, uh, in, I don't know, around the age of 40, we stopped talking to each other for a long time. And then we reformed again in 2005, there was massive interest in the band, we did fantastic tours of America, and Andy and I worked together then for about another five or so years and again I found after a while I found the the, the drinking was a bit much for me yeah. so um, how, how does it make you feel that so many bands have mentioned your gang of four as influences like big bands I mean that must for you must be such a great feeling because these people were saying just like how you saw Dylan and you went I wanted to do that these people saw you and said it was an influence. How does that make you feel as a performer? Well, uh, I, I, um, I, I, I feel really uh, humble about it because I, I think all creative people um, are inspired by by someone or something or other. But you know, you say that's that's what turned me on. Like you know, as I mentioned Dylan, but you know, when uh, when we were young, Andy and I just adored Jimi Hendrix, you know, I still listen to Who Did Charles Slight Return, you know, more or less every week, yes, as a, one of the greatest pieces of guitar playing ever. Um, so you, you, you see your idols and, you, and they make, they, they, they change the way that you think you can do things. And I, I feel when I, um, 
people say, I, I really thought that when you did, you know, the entertainment really changed my life or changed the way I approach it. I, I, I'm, I'm utterly flattered and, and so glad because the only, the only reason it's, it's worth seeing Gang of Four at all is because the music doesn't sound like anything else. I mean, that's, I mean, I, uh, you, you know, you know where you are. You're not, you're not in a world of accountancy. You know, like I, 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 I feel now the same as I did um, when we wrote this stuff, which is, you know, you often felt the fifth invisible member of any band uh, was an accountant saying, if you do it more like this, it'll make it a bit more commercial or whatever. But the music that lasts and lasts and lasts, you know, you're in a, a different vocabulary. You know, when you listen to Miles Davis, uh, uh, some of those, the, the, you know, like um, uh, in a blue mood, those kind of things. You know, that you, you you know that there's a new vocabulary being created, um, new possibilities, and, and there might be possibilities of how you feel about other people, how you feel about society, or how you feel. Uh, about the world, and um, and it's and it's thrilling, you know. And, and I went, I name dropping slightly. I was, I did a gig with in um, in Poland with uh, uh, with John Cale. I was one of the guest singers singing a tribute to Nico, and I had to sing three songs in German. Uh, I don't speak German, but I learnt it phonetically. We played this song and all this thing. And what was really interesting was Nico had a sort of very niche talent, but even though I, I, I did I did in the end have a translation of the words, but you knew you were in a different sort of vocabulary, you know, of of of, of something or other. And I was talking to to the, one of the other things, Mark Lanigan, and Mark Lanigan, you know, get on very well, and and and, and we were talking about um, Delta Blues, and. Uh, the words on those songs are incredible. You know, um, you know, I said, well, I love that song, Fattening Frogs with Snakes. Uh, and, and I said, but the greatest uh, miserable title of all is Please Tend My Grave When I'm Gone, uh, which I think is Blind Lemon Jefferson. I think, I think like Mark went, oh, it's amazing, man. He pulled his shirt off and then he had it tattooed across his back. And it, it was interesting, you know, to think that... Uh, these sort of these white musicians years later can get inspired by the African American experience of of that in some way. You know, it's so uh, so prof so profound. Um, so I'm touched. I'm, I'm waffling, but I think I, 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 I and went again on the box set. Hugo reached out to people and said, "You know, we're doing this thing. Do you want to say anything?" Because I wanted to put a context next. Each song had a a factoid and a bit of context, what people thought at the time. I wanted to say it was what the time was like. And everyone, you know, it was it was so generous in the things that they said. And I was I was I was really very touched, you know, and, and proud. I was proud that people who I have great respect for um, can have been inspired in turn, you know. Yeah. Well that's awesome man. You know I have one I have one final question and I'll let you go. What can we expect on this tour? Do you already have your set list set up? Do you already have encores? I mean, when you're coming, or will you change it up? I and mean, what, what can we expect? And you're coming, to, you're coming to Philly on March 8th. What, yeah. um, what can we expect on the tour? You can expect uh, 
there's going to be about, I think we're hoping to play about 20 or so songs, something like that. So we're going to play, it's going to be very, very intense. I mean, uh, it's, um, we, we don't like to hang about. And so I don't know if you ever saw us uh, live before, but we don't sort of don't mess around. It's not a shoegazing show. It'll be, it'll be really, really intense and, and, and on point. So we'll play a lot of songs. Most of the songs will be from Entertainment and Solid Gold, but there will be songs from uh, Songs of the Free. Um, and uh, we are going to, um, I think, if we get an encore, we might play Elevator, <laughs> which I really enjoy now. I don't know. It's, uh, and uh, uh, it, it'd be great. And Philadelphia, Philadelphia, of course, was the place we did our very first ever US gig was in Philadelphia, and it was awesome. So I... I love Philadelphia because that's one of the places I hitchhiked to to go to the Aaronsburg collection in Philadelphia from when I hitched up there from DC. So I um I I have uh, I have a great love of the place. Yeah. Well, I I want to thank you for taking the time, uh, John. People go on Twitter or go on Facebook and you can find Gang of Four. And you know if you go on Twitter and you link, it will show it will link you right to their tour. You can find all the tour dates and they they have a nice tour starting. You gotta go listen to your music. You know it's one of those things. You, you have to know it. Like, for me, it meant a lot to me when I was in college when my friends turned me on to it. So go listen to Gang of Four. Um, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 895 episodes there. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Twitter, it's at coopertalk. Instagram, it's at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.